0: Hey! This session is all about Chapter 9, The Ponds, where Henry actually gets to the main character of Walden, the pond itself. Give a listen. Chapter 9, The Ponds Sometimes, having had a surfeit of human society and gossip, and worn out all my village friends, I rambled still farther westward than I habitually dwell into a yet more unfrequented parts of the town to fresh woods and pastures new or while the sun was setting made my supper of huckleberries and blueberries on Fairhaven Hill and laid up a store for several days. The fruits do not yield their true flavor to the purchaser of them nor to him who raises them for the market. There is but one way to obtain it, yet few take that way. If you would know the flavor of huckleberries, ask the cowboy or the partridge. It is a vulgar error to suppose that you have tasted huckleberries who never plucked them. A huckleberry never reaches Boston. They have not been known there since they grew on her three hills." The ambrosial and essential part of the fruit is lost with the bloom, which is rubbed off in the market cart, and they become mere provender. As long as eternal justice reigns, not one innocent huckleberry can be transported thither from the country's hills. Occasionally, after my hoeing was done for the day... I joined some impatient companion who had been fishing on the pond since morning, as silent and motionless as a duck or a floating leaf, and after practicing various kinds of philosophy, had concluded commonly by the time I arrived that he belonged to the ancient sect of Sionobites— There was an older man with an excellent fisher and skilled in all kinds of woodcraft who was pleased to look upon my house as a building erected for the convenience of fishermen, and I was equally pleased when he sat in my doorway to arrange his lines. Once in a while we sat together on the pond, he at one end of the boat and I at the other, but not many words passed between us, for he had grown deaf in his later years, but he occasionally hummed a psalm, which harmonized well enough with my philosophy our intercourse was thus altogether one of unbroken harmony far more pleasing to remember than if it had been carried on by speech when as was commonly the case i had none to commune with i used to raise the echoes by striking with a paddle on the side of my boat filling the surrounding woods with circling and dilating sound "'stirring them up as the keeper of a menagerie, his wild beasts, "'until I elicited a growl from every wooded vale and hillside. "'In warm evenings I frequently sat in the boat playing the flute "'and saw the perch, which I seemed to have charmed, hovering around me, "'and the moon travelling over the ribbed bottom, "'which was strewed with the wrecks of the forest.' Formerly, I had come to this pond adventurously, from time to time in dark summer nights with a companion and making a fire close to the water's edge, which we thought attracted the fishes. We caught pouts with a bunch of worms strung on a thread, and when we had done far in the night, threw the burning brands high into the air like skyrockets, which coming down into the pond were quenched with loud hissing, and we were suddenly groping in total darkness. Through this, whistling a tune, we took our way to the haunts of men again. But now I had made my home by the shore. Sometimes, after staying in a village parlor till the family had all retired, I have returned to the woods and, partly with a view to the next day's dinner, spent the hours of midnight fishing from a boat by moonlight, serenaded by owls and foxes, and hearing from time to time the creaking note of some unknown bird close at hand. These experiences were very memorable and valuable to me, anchored in 40 feet of water and 20 or 30 rods from the shore, surrounded sometimes by thousands of small perch and shiners, dimpling the surface with their tails in the moonlight, and communicating by a long flaxen line with mysterious nocturnal fishes, which had their dwelling 40 feet below, or sometimes dragging 60 feet of line about the pond as I drifted in the gentle night breeze now and then feeling a slight vibration along it, indicative of some life prowling about its extremity of dull, uncertain, blundering purpose there and slow to make up its mind. At length, you slowly raise, pulling hand over hand, some horned pout squeaking and squirming to the upper air. It was very queer, especially in dark nights when your thoughts had wandered to vast and cosmogonal themes in other spheres to feel this faint jerk which came to interrupt your dreams and link you to nature again it seemed as if i might next cast my line upward into the air as well as downward into this element which was scarcely more dense thus i caught two fishes as it were with one hook The scenery of Walden is on a humble scale, and, though very beautiful, does not approach to grandeur, nor can it much concern one who has not long frequented it, nor lived by its shore, yet this pond is so remarkable for its depth and purity as to merit a particular description. It is a clear and deep green well, half a mile long, and a mile and three quarters in circumference, and contains about sixty-one and a half acres. A perennial spring in the midst of pine and oak woods without any visible inlet or outlet, except by the clouds and evaporation. The surrounding hills rise abruptly from the water to the height of 40 to 80 feet, though on the southeast and east they attain to about one hundred and one hundred and fifty feet respectively, within a quarter and a third of a mile. They are exclusively woodland all our conquered waters have two colors at least, one when viewed at a distance and another more proper, close at hand. The first depends more on the light and follows the sky. In clear weather, in summer, they appear blue at a little distance, especially if agitated, and at a great distance all appear alike. In stormy weather, they are sometimes of a dark slate color. The sea, however, is said to be blue one day and green another without any perceptible change in the atmosphere. I have seen our river when, the landscape being covered with snow, both water and ice were almost as green as grass. Some consider blue to be the color of pure water, whether liquid or solid, but looking directly down into our waters from a boat, they are seen to be of different colors. Walden is blue at one time and green at another even from the same point of view lying between the earth and the heavens it partakes of the color of both viewed from a hilltop it reflects the color of the sky but near at hand it is of a yellowish tint near next to the shore where you can see the sand then a light green which gradually deepens to a uniform dark green in the body of the pond in some lights viewed even from a hilltop It is of a vivid green next to the shore. Some has referred to this as the reflection of the verdure, but it is equally green there against the railroad sandbank and in the spring, before the leaves are expanded, and it may be simply the result of the prevailing blue mixed with the yellow of the sand. Such is the color of its iris. This is that portion also where in the spring the ice being warmed by the heat of the sun reflected from the bottom and also transmitted through the earth melts first and forms a narrow canal about the still frozen middle. Like the rest of our waters, when much agitated in clear weather so that the surface of the waves may reflect the sky at the right angle or because there is little more light mixed with it, it appears at a little distance of a darker blue than the sky itself. And at such a time, being on its surface and looking with divided vision, so as to see the reflection, I have discerned a matchless and indescribable light blue, such as watered or changeable silks and sword blades suggest, more cerulean than the sky itself, alternating with the original dark green on the opposite sides of the waves, which last appeared but muddy in comparison." It is a vitreous greenish blue as I remember it, like those patches of the winter sky seen through cloud vistas in the west before sundown. Yet a single glass of its water held up to the light is as colorless as an equal quantity of air. It is well known that a large plate of glass will have a green tint, owing, as its makers say, to its body, "'but a small piece of the same will be colorless. "'How large a body of Walden water would be required "'to reflect a green tint, I have never proved. "'The water of our river is black or a very dark brown "'to one looking directly down on it, "'and like that of most ponds, "'imparts to the body of one bathing in it a yellowish tinge.' But this water is of such crystalline purity that the body of the bather appears in an alabaster whiteness, still more unnatural, which, as the limbs are magnified and distorted withal, produces a monstrous effect, making fit studies for a Michelangelo. The water is so transparent that the bottom can easily be discerned at the depth of 25 or 30 feet. Paddling over it, you may see many feet beneath the surface of the schools of perch and shiners, perhaps only an inch long, yet the former easily distinguished by their transverse bars, and you think that they must be ascetic fish that find a subsistence there. Once in the winter, many years ago, when I had been cutting holes through the ice in order to catch pickerel, as I stepped ashore, I tossed my my axe back onto the ice, But, as if some evil genius had directed it, it slid four or five rods directly into one of the holes, (laughs) where the water was twenty-five feet deep. Out of curiosity, I lay down on the ice and looked through the hole, until I saw, saw the axe a little on one side, standing on its head, with its helve erect, and gently swaying to and fro with the pulse of the pond. And there it might have stood erect and swaying, till in the course of time the handle rotted off, if I had not disturbed it. Making another hole directly over it with an ice chisel, which I had, and cutting down the longest birch which I could find in the neighborhood with my knife, I made a slip noose, which I attached to its end, and letting it down carefully, passed it over the knob of the handle, and drew it by a line along the birch, and so pulled the axe out again. The shore is composed of a belt of smooth, rounded white stones, like paving stones, excepting one or two short sand beaches, and is so steep that in many places a single leap will carry you into water over your head, and were it not for its remarkable transparency, that would be the last to be seen of its bottom till it rose on the opposite side. Some think it is bottomless. It is nowhere muddy. And a casual observer would say that there were no weeds in it at at all, and of noticeable plants, except in the little meadows recently overflowed, which do not properly belong to it. A closer scrutiny does not detect a flag, nor a bulrush, nor even a lily, yellow or white, but only a few small heart leaves, and potomatons, and perhaps a water target or two, all of which, however, a bather might not perceive And these plants are clean and bright, like the element they grow in, with stones. The stones extend a rod or two into the water. And then the bottom is pure sand, except in the deepest part, where there is usually a little sediment, probably from the decay of the leaves, which have been wafted onto it so many successful falls, and a bright green weed is brought up on anchors, even in midwinter. We have one other pond, just like this, White Pond, in Nine Acre Corner, about two and a half miles westerly. But though I am acquainted with most of the ponds within a dozen miles of this center, I do not know a third of this pure and well like character. Successive nations, per- perchance, have drunk at, admired, and fathomed it, and passed away, and still its water is green and pellucid as ever. Not an intermitting spring. Perhaps on that green morning, when Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, Walden Pond was already in existence, and even then, breaking up in a gentle spring rain, accompanied with mist and a southerly wind, and covered with myriads of ducks and geese, which had not heard of the fall, when still such pure lakes sufficed them." Even then it had commenced to rise and fall and had clarified its waters and colored them of the hue they now wear and obtained a patent of heaven to be the only Walden pond in the world and distiller's and distiller of the celestial dews. Who knows in how many unremembered nations' literature this has been the Castilian fountain or what, what nymphs presided over it in the golden age. It is a gem of the first water which Concord wears in her coronet. Yet, perchance, the first who come to this well have left some trace of their footsteps. I have been surprised to detect, encircling the pond, even where a thick wood has just been cut down on the shore, a narrow, shelf-like path in the steep hillside, alternating, alternately rising and falling, approaching and receding from the water's edge— as old, probably, as the race of man here, worn by the feet of Aboriginal hunters, and still from time to time unwittingly trodden by the present occupants of the land. This is particularly distinct to one standing in the middle of the pond in winter, just after a light snow has fallen, appearing as a clear undulating white line unobscured by weeds and twigs and very obvious a quarter of a mile off in many places where in summer it is hardly distinguishable close at hand the snow reprints it as it were in clear white type alto relievio the ornamented grounds of villas which will one day be built here may still preserve some trace of this The pond rises and falls, but whether regularly or not, and within what period, nobody knows. Though, as usual, many pretend to know. It is commonly higher in the winter and lower in the summer, though not corresponding to the general wet and dryness. I can remember when it was a foot or two lower, and also when it was at least five feet higher than when I lived at it. There is a narrow sandbar running into it, very deep water on one side, on which I helped boil a kettle of chowder, some six rods from the main shore, about the year 1824, which has not, it has not been possible to do for 25 years. And on the other hand, my friends used to listen with incredulity when I told them that a few years later I was accustomed to fish from a boat in a secluded cove in the woods, 15 rods from the only shore they knew, which place was long since converted into a meadow. But the pond has risen steadily for two years, and now, in the summer of 52, it is just five feet higher than when I lived there, or as high as it was 30 years ago, and fishing goes on again in the meadow. This makes a difference of level at the outside of six or seven feet, and yet the watershed by the surrounding hills is insignificant in amount. And this overflow must be referred to causes which affect the deep springs. This same summer, the pond has begun to fall again. It is remarkable that this fluctuation, whether periodical or not, appears thus to require many years for its accomplishment. I have observed one rise and a part of two falls, and I expect that a dozen or fifteen years hence, the water will again be as low as I have ever known it. Flint's Pond, a mile eastward, allowing for the disturbance occasioned by its inlets and outlets, and the smaller intermediate ponds also sympathize with Walden, and recently attained their greatest height at the same time with the latter. The same is true, as far as my observation goes, of White Pond. This rise and fall of Walden at long intervals serves this use at least. The water standing at this great height for a year or more, though it makes it difficult to walk round it, kills the shrubs and trees which have sprung up about its edge since the last rise, pitch pines, birches, alders, aspen, and others, and falling again, leaves an unobstructed shore. For unlike many ponds and all waters which are subject to a daily tide, its shore is cleanest when the water is lowest. On the side of the pond next to my house, a row of pitch pines, 15 feet high, has been killed and tipped over as if by a lever, and thus a stop put to their encroachments. And their size indicates how many years have elapsed since the last rise to this height. By this fluctuation, the pond asserts its title to a shore, and thus the shore is shorn, and the trees cannot hold it by right of possession. These are the lips of the lake on which no beard grows. It licks its chaps from time to time. When the water is at its height, the alders, willows, and maples send forth a mass of fibrous red roots, several feet long from all sides on their stems in the water, and to the height of three or four feet from the ground, in the effort to maintain themselves. And I have known the high blueberry bushes about the shore, which commonly produce no fruit, bear an abundant crop under these circumstances. Some have been puzzled to tell how the shore became so regularly paved— My townsmen have all heard the tradition. The oldest people tell me that they heard it in their youth, that anciently the Indians were holding a powwow upon the hill here, which rose as high into the heavens as the pond now sinks deep into the earth. And they used much profanity, as the story goes, though this vice is one of which the Indians were never guilty. And while they were thus engaged, the hill shook and suddenly sank, and only one old squaw named Walden escaped, and from her the pond was named. It has been conjectured that when the hill shook, these stones rolled down its side and became the present shore. It is very certain, at any rate, that once there was no pond here, and now there is one. "'And this Indian fable does not in any respect "'conflict with the account of that ancient settler "'whom I have mentioned, who remembers so well "'when he first came here with his divining rod, "'saw a thin vapor rising from a sword, "'and the hazel pointed steadily downward, "'and he concluded to dig a well here. "'As for the stones, many still think "'that they are hardly to be accounted for "'by the action of the waves on the hills.' But I observe that the surrounding hills are remarkably full of the same kind of stones, so that when they have been obliged to pile them up in walls on both sides of the railroad cut nearest the pond, and moreover, there are more stones where the shore is most abrupt, so that unfortunately, it is no longer a mystery to me. I detect the paver. If the name was not derived from that of some English locality, Saffron Walden, for instance, one might suppose that it was called originally Walled-In Pond. Hey, this is Tammy Rose, and I just read the um, first part of Chapter 9, The Ponds. And um, I feel like Henry's actually just just getting to like the actual topic that his book is based on, um, Walden itself. Um, it's long been my theory that, you know, Henry had written this book and a lot of it is about himself. And he uses the eye as a character and a narrator. Um, and you know, it's sort of a a mystery whether it's actually him or, you know, the character that he is sort of evolving and developing and, you know, whom he sort of laughs at and, you know, pretends to really take seriously sometimes. And, you know, is it him? Is it a version of himself? Is it, you know, whatever. Um, So part of the book of Walden is about that character. Um, And a lot of people, you know, assume that that, Absolutely is him. And, you know, this is, this is one of those books that it's not quite a novel, and it's not quite a scientific treatise. Um, You know, so it's all about a bunch of experiences and, you know, what it's like to be a human um, experiencing this pond. And this is one of my favorite chapters, because I really feel like he's finally talking about who I think is the main character, the pond itself. And if you haven't been there, um, you know, number one, I highly recommend that you do go because I I really do think it's an incredible experience. Um, I feel like I have a personal relationship with this pond because I've gone there, you know, every summer of my life. Um, My father took me there when I was a little kid. Um, I live, you know, as I mentioned, I live like the next town over. I'm maybe 15, 20 minutes away. So it's definitely been my local watering hole um, where, you know, you just, you go in the summertime and um, it's, it's wonderful and refreshing. And I, you know, I can date myself by saying that I remember going, um, and I guess this was there until the mid 80s. I might've mentioned this before. There was a cement pier on the main part of the beach. um, You know, this, it was... It was specifically catering to swimmers. It was this major human intrusion, I think, onto the natural beauty of the pond. But, you know, when I was there, I definitely remember it, you know, enhancing my experience because I remember playing in part of the shallows and, you know, you could climb up onto it and jump off of it. And, you know, this is and again like it was a cement thing it was a permanent structure inside of the the pond itself um i i've i've rarely been able to find photos of it um because i think it's something that um you know people don't want people don't want to remember that part of the pond's history um or you know how the how the dcr um the department of um whatever of conservation and recreation I'm not sure that's what, it's, what it was called in the eighties, but uh the people who were responsible for taking care of the pond that's one of the things they actually had um and I think it was removed i want to say like in eighty five something like that, and so ever since then it has just been a place of nature where you can just go and um, you know and enjoy it in the summer and and honestly, at all points of the year and this is the piece where I'm ultimately deeply jealous of Henry David Thoreau, you know, and I'm not jealous of him as a writer, of his, you know, amazing personality, of his journal writings, of like all of those amazing skills. Like I think that they are wonderful. And yes, I I'm very envious to a point of all of the the character of Henry David Thoreau and all that he has been um able to accomplish. Um, especially in history and literature, blah, blah, blah. The thing that makes me the most jealous, the thing that I want is to be able to live at Walden for two years, two years, two months and two days. Um, But to spend that amount of time there constantly, consciously um, and just taking it for granted. And any of you who have, you know, a little shack or, you know, a, a, a home by a river or some body of water will really understand what that is. Um, Because just being able to wake up um, and knowing that, you know, you can in the middle of summer that you can wake up and, you know, the first thing you do is to take a swim, you know, or you wake up in the middle of winter and the first thing you do is just open your door to the middle of the wilderness um, and and Walden especially. So of all the places that I've been on the earth, and I've I've traveled to Europe, I've traveled to Cape Cod, you know, traveled around America. Um, for some very weird reason, and I feel like even Henry doesn't quite capture it in this book. There is something um, that you that you just actually can't even put into words about Walden Pond itself. Um, for those of you who haven't visited, I, I should try to describe it. Um, the the entrance as it is now, there's a you know there's a parking lot across the street, and as you're walking through the parking lot, there's a replica of the cabin and a statue of Henry, um, which sort of announces the the legend, the literature, the piece of it. Um, on the parking lot side, there's also like a visitor center and a bookshop. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, you're you're walking into it, and you're sort of like, all right, this is a typical American interpretation of, you know, a a tourist spot, right? So how, like, how do you interact with this? There's a bookshop. There's a the the visitor center is run by the the government, the DCR, I think, and so sometimes they have a statue or they have maps or they have a way to interpret it. Um, but the replica of the cabin is one of the first moments that you step into it and you're, you're sort of like, you're, you're stepping into a thing because there are lots of tourist places that try to tell you about history or whatever. But when Henry's talking about his experiences and the cabin, stepping into his cabin, you kind of suddenly, again, like without words, you suddenly understand the size of his cabin. And the place that he lived for two years um and this interior room, and you know it's it's like the size of a small like woodshed it's you know i and I keep joking that it's the size of you know one of the first places that I lived in um in new York you know and and i when I was a kid, I always thought it was really small, but after I came back from New York, I was like this is this is perfectly fine, it's like seven by ten or something like that. But you step into it, and you suddenly have the experience of, oh wait, this is what it's like to live inside of this cabin. And then you know you have to cross a relatively bu- busy street, and then you go down uh, what I think is actually a very steep ramp. Um, it's it's steep enough so that they put a warning that say you know that states it's not actually ADA compliant because the angle of the ramp is too steep for wheelchairs to go down it, um, completely safely. So it's, it's accessible by by wheelchair, but if you do, if you are bringing someone with a wheelchair, just be very, very careful, um, because it's, it's steep enough to, you know, and you know, it's, it's, it's not like, it's, it's not, it's not ridiculously steep. It's just steeper than, um, you know, whatever, whatever ramps that you're probably used to. I will say it does feel incredibly steep when you're climbing back up, especially after a a long swim. Um and and you you end up at the bottom, you end up in a really lovely paved concrete area that has that's sort of by the 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 bathhouse where there are bathrooms. And they've they've created some kind of terraced background, um, to sort of face the beach. Um, and I feel like it's almost in the shape of a little amphitheater around the main beach. Um, and they have stone walls that you can sit on and they have stairs and at the far end, they have another ramp. So if you do have someone with a wheelchair, you, you should go just to the far end of that beach. And then there's a ramp that brings you down into the sand. Um, and then just standing on that main beach for me has so many memories um but it's a it's just a really beautiful view of the whole pond and as you mentioned it's like what half a mile across um you it's it's pretty much um it's kind of in the shape of an oval and when you're at the main beach you're sort of at the the narrow end of the oval if you look at a map it's actually in the shape of a i feel like like an oxen that only has like one leg it's very funny Um, you can see most of the shore from the main beach. You can't really see into Thoreau's Cove. Um, but you can, as you're looking, it's sort of up there on your, um, it's on your right. I would say that it's like kind of at one o'clock as you're looking. Um, and you know, like I said, it, it has, it has so many memories for me of myself um, my father who died when I was young. And, um, and then after he died, my mom would take me and my neighborhood friends to go there because it was close enough. And she was from the Azores and she loved the water. Um, so after work, it was one of the the favorite things for all of us to do because it was simple and it was a good, a good way for me, me and my friends to get out our energy and for her to just sort of have some calm, um, and I love going there in the fall, and especially now, so I'm reading this um, sort of at the beginning part of November. and I will tell you that the the swimming season generally goes until the middle of October. Um, so you know up until Columbus Day or Indigenous people's Day, um, the the water temperature is still pretty much the same as it's been from the rest of the summer. so even though sometimes the temperature feels the air temperature feels a little colder the water temperature is pretty much stable until like the first few days where the, you know the air gets down to 50 or 40 and so now that we're in the beginning of november it's definitely swimming season is definitely over for me i think there're still there're plenty of people who still swim like every day that they possibly can you know until the pond completely freezes over. And there's even one guy I think who will go and, you know, when the ice is just beginning to form, he'll swim and he'll actually break the ice as much as he can um so that he can get across and get in his daily swim. Um and lots of people wear, you know, different layers of wetsuits and and things like that. I've tried it with a wetsuit. It's not um it's not as pleasant as I wish I it, that it had been. Um, Henry talks about the depth of the water and the quality of the color of the water. Um, and I agree with him. It's like you look at this water and it's, it really is clear and, you know, to, to kind of an, an astonishing extent, you know, if you stand on the shore, you look out and you can pretty much see things, see, you can, you can pretty much see the bottom of the water, um, you know, Uh, You know, within, um, you know, I I always compare it to like how, how deep the water is when I'm in it. So I feel like from the shore, I can see almost to where the water is like three or four feet high. Um, And then I think just, just because like the light doesn't reach that far. Um, So when you're in it, even when I'm swimming across, I can always see my feet but I can't really tell what's underneath there. Um and for those of you who are afraid to swim in deep water, um I always recommend swimming along the shore. Um because the shore itself, as he said, like there are some I love how he's describing the shore. He's like, there are some places where you're kind of on a cliff and you can just jump and then you're in the water above your head. Um the the shore is not exactly like it that right now because as I said the DCR has done a really marvelous job of of, um, maintaining the path and trying to prevent erosion but allowing certain places where people can have access so there are no cliff-like parts right now Um, and that would also kind of be dangerous Um, but there are different levels of depth throughout and especially if you're swimming around Thoreau's Cove. Um, that, that cove feels especially shallow and there's a sudden drop off, um, at a certain point. So if you're swimming there and there's also a a place called the point, which is sort of at the, the, um, the part that you can see as you're looking, as I mentioned, like at two o'clock, you know, if you're looking towards, towards, uh, Thoreau's Cove, um, there's a, like an outcropping. And I think they actually used to add sand to that part um, artificially. So they, they built up a beach there. And so part of it is really shallow, but then there's like a very extreme drop-off. Um, I think there are geologists who've studied it and they say that Thoreau's Cove is kind of like a whole separate pond area that ended up joining with the rest of Walden Um there and also when you talk to geologists they talk about you know how there was a big iceberg um that just got stuck um in that in that land and that's actually how they how walden was created because this iceberg just you know was had been moving and then just stopped moving got stuck and you know just melted in place and i love how how henry talks about a um an Indian legend, you know, quote unquote Indian legend, um, about, you know, a a squaw named Walden. Um, and Walden is very much a German word. So, um, it, I think wall means trees. Um, so, you know, I, 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 it's one of those, it's one of those situations where I feel like, um, The white settlers have come up with, you know, all sorts of legends, whether they're true or not, (laughs) whether they actually came from anybody who had any um, actual background in this is highly dubious. Um, I myself, living, you know, in in a place 20 minutes away, there is a pond nearby as well, and that's called Hardy Pond and it's kind of shaped like a fist with a thumbs up, um, piece. And it's a very shallow pond, but that I know that there were Native Americans in my area as well. And, you know, lots of, um, arrowheads were found, et cetera, et cetera. And the local legend is that it was considered one of the holy places. Um, but I literally have no idea how to research that, um, except for, um, trying to uh, connect with um, local tribes, um, like the Nipmuc tribe was um, was in Concord, um, but I don't know how to uh, how to corroborate any of the Native American history. Um, but I'm, but and, so I'm trying to get to the point that Henry is aware that there were people on this land before him and that he's just part of this great continuum. Um, So for me, just being a person who really loves Walden, it's incredible for me to hear him describe what Walden was like in his day with so much detail. Um, But he's also kind of yearning for that explanation of, you know, what were the Native Americans thinking of? And he also wants to do some kind of history historical digging he, like he wants to know who made the path cuz he's talking he, he at one point he mentions this path that goes around the pond um that you can notice if you're if it's in the middle of winter and the pond is frozen over and you're in the standing in the middle of the the pond you can actually see this path and it's something that animals maybe have used but it's so intentional that it must have been Native Americans as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, and again, like the pond itself is such, it feels holy um, in ways that a lot of other, you know, in ways that a lot of other ponds don't. Does that sound crazy? Um, and I, I think I laughed when I was reading because he's like, oh yeah, so, you know, someday the villas that are going to surround Walden pond and i was like oh my god i can't i can't imagine houses on you know the side of the pond even even henry's house i don't think was really visible from the um from the shore or if you were swimming or whatever um it's it's not close enough really to be seen um and you know it's and it's it's always lovely to be in a large pond or whatever. And, you know, especially if you own a house, right, that's right on a pond. Um, I feel like there, are, I've I've been to many places down the Cape where the shoreline is lined with houses and you really just have to take it for granted that, you know, it's not about, it's not about nature. It's about people being able to enjoy getting up close to nature. Um, and sadly, it's, sometimes it, it's one of those things where you, it requires a, um, major investment and you have to have lots of money to be able to enjoy this. Um, you know, where, where Walden is, is just one of those places where it's, it's too small, I think. And, you know, and it's, well, and especially it's not, it's not that it's too small. It's that it, um, the land has been specifically set aside and preserved, um, by the people of Concord. Um, as, as you may know, the Emerson, um, bought the lit piece of land that Henry was on. But there was, I think, another family that owned another large portion of it. And I believe that they donated it to the town of Concord. Um, there's another organization called Walden Woods um, that was started by Don Henley. And that is talking about different pieces of land um, outside of the immediate um, area of the pond. But it was... Considered it was literally like up for development and they were going to turn it into apartments and, you know, um, and some of it was going to be low income housing, which the people of Concord um, would, were not really excited about, to put it politely. Um, and, you know, so he was able to purchase all of that and to, you know, quote unquote, save it. Um, and if you ever get a chance to go to the Walden Woods Institute, they have a gorgeous library that has like every piece of Henry David Thoreau um, that has ever been published um, in their collections. And, you know, the building itself was created out of wood and it's a beautiful, expensive building and and just a, a marvelous place to go. Um, and it's funny, so if you're visiting Walden, um, on that side where the parking lot is, just further down, there used to be a trailer park. Um, I think up until, probably up until the 90s. Um, and then further on, as you're approaching Route 2, um, there literally is the town dump across from Walden Pond. I think I might have mentioned that before. Um, if you, When you cross Route 2, there's Brister's Hill. And, um, you know, the, the sort of the edge of the, of the woods where, um, you know, Henry mentions in, in neighbors and whatever, you know, where the African-American members of the town were not exactly invited to, um, to take up residence in the center of town, but they were sort of pushed off into the edges. Um, so Brister's Hill is sort of one of the, one of the, um, landmarks that you can, um, you can see is sort of at the edge. Um, and then of of course there's Fairyland Pond as well, which is another darling little pond that's connected through the, um, Thoreau Emerson Ramble. Um, I love that Henry mentions White Pond, which he says is like two and a half miles away. Um, and that pond, that pond is definitely a pond that has houses on all sides. Um, I have a friend who lives there and it's a great place to go swimming. And it's also one of, you know, the the big secrets of Concord. Um, you, I think there is like a semi-public beach, but you're really only supposed to swim there if you have a Concord sticker. Um, I don't have the same experience with White Pond. And I don't think they have a similar path if you want to walk around it. Um, kind of because there's all that private property um, when oh, and, uh and and also when Henry was trying to figure out where he was going to build his cabin, um there is another pond it's called Flint's pond um that's actually over in lincoln um and it's 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 really not much further from Walden um if you ever go to decordova Art Museum um which is a beautiful outdoor park and they have an indoor um exhibition space of of contemporary art that's absolutely always amazing. Um there you know, Flint's Pond is just behind it and it's much bigger. And if you do do go into, into Cordova you can go you can take an elevator to the um to the roof and they allow you to, to take all sorts of pictures and it's a really gorgeous space. It's very windy all the time. Um but it's You know, looking at Flint's Pond is a different experience, um, and and you definitely get a different vantage point than you get from Walden. Um, But Flint's Pond is sort of it's curvier. You can't really see it all in one place because there's and there are islands in it, and it's much bigger and it has a much different shape to it. Um, But Henry's college roommate Charles Stearns Wheeler um, already had a cabin. And, he, and I think his family had built it. Um, I'm not sure if he built it himself, um, but he had invited Henry to come stay with him, I think overnight, maybe for a couple of weeks, um, during the summer, in between um, you know, their years at Harvard. And so I think that's where Henry had gotten his idea, and then his you know, his roommate, you know, years later, um, went to um, I think it was Germany or whatever he went to Europe. And so Henry asked his family if he could stay at his friend's house, his friend's little cabin. And his family said, no, <laughs> they, they did not want to share. Um, and I always think it's interesting that, you know, Walden literally could have been, um, you know, Flint's pond. It could have been like about a whole other completely different pond. Um, and sadly, his, his friend actually died, I think, of um, consumption when he was in Germany. So his friend didn't, um, I don't think he lived past his twenties. He died really, really young. Um, so, so anyway, so that's Flint's pond. That's another, that's another place to visit. Flint's pond is actually harder to explore and get up close to. Um, so again, like the fates of all of these different ponds that I'm talking about and that, that Henry's talking about Um, it's very interesting because Walden is the one that sort of gets preserved in a way that allows people to access it. And it's sort of a very public kind of pond and a a very public, um, like public friendly pond. There are lots of people who are like, people should not swim in it at all. And, oh my God, all these visitors that come here, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. They're going to ruin everything. Um, but, Honestly, nature is much more re- resilient than we give it credit for, um, and the DCR, as I said, they're they're pretty good at um, at limiting the number of people who go, and they they actually do close off the parking lot um, when there are a maximum number of cars, um, so that it doesn't get too crowded. Um, as I said before, like one of the reasons I'm I'm jealous of Henry just living there for two years, two months, and two days. Is that he gets so much alone time with the pond? Um, if you've ever been there in the summer, yeah, it does. It does feel crowded, especially the main beach area. Um, you know, I've I've definitely seen pictures of like what Coney Island, you know, in the the 30s or 40s or whatever, where like there's no space and you can't even see the sand for all of the bodies. Um, Walden doesn't really ever get like that. Um, there's also there's always enough space so that if there if the main beach feels too crowded to you there's a secondary beach they call that red red cross beach um so that you can go there or you can just keep walking and you can usually always find some spot um along the um along the waterline um and maybe it's sandy or whatever um but you can usually find enough uh like some some place to sort of call your own for that for the day Um, but when, but when I say that Henry had all this alone time with the pond, he's talking about, you know, being able to, to, to visit with it in the middle of the night. And I love that he's like, you know, he, he, um he talks about making noise with the oar in his boat, you know, like, like somebody who, uh, you know, has a menagerie and he just wants to like ruffle everybody up. So he just makes a lot of noise. And then like he, he, uh, he gets all the animals agitated. I think that's funny. And uh, that probably also speaks to his, um, um, like, I, I don't want to say like him going crazy being alone, but just sort of like when you're completely alone, you kind of want to ha- reach out and sort of see what, um, what other elements of nature exist out there. Um, and I think, I think this is, I think I'm kind of coming to the end of what I want to say about the ponds, at, at least at this moment. Um, when he's talking about bathing and, and he's saying that people come out with a yellowish tinge, I've never had any kind of tinge coming out, frankly. Um, the, oh, I did want to talk about the, the quality of the water as you're actually moving through the water. If it feels thicker and it has a really silky smooth, um, texture to it as you're swimming. Um, I've never been able to really describe it, but, this is something else that that other swimmers have have noted as well. Um there's just something really beautiful about the the water itself and it does feel like a holy um baptism like every time i go in it feels like it feels like worshiping nature. It feels like experiencing nature up close and appreciating it in a way that um words really can't. So I think I will stop there. Um, There's definitely more to come on this chapter. So thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in more information about the Transcendentalists, please go to TranscendentalConquered.com or join our Facebook group, which is called Transcendentalists 2021. We also have a book group there. Um, and there's also a marvelous series of conversations on YouTube called Conquered Days, um, where I interview um, and to- or, they're basically conversations. They're not even interviews. Um, I just talk to people who are historians or authors or other kinds of history nerds, um, people who are just really excited to talk about various topics along Um, Thoreau, uh, you know, the Transcendentalists, Concord in general, Revolutionary War stuff, Um, just people who, uh, you know, that I've run into in the Circle of Concord who are interested in um, getting deeper into different aspects of all of this. So come join the exciting array of uh, of topics and community that are all around the Transcendentalists. Um, again, most of it is um, on the main website, TranscendentalConcord.com.